please read Psalm 127 with me? Unless the Lord builds a house, those who built it in labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I get the privilege of introducing uh, our friend Nick. I can tell you that he does consulting work for leaders. I can tell you that he's planted two churches, that he's managed uh, some really good bands. But what I actually want to tell you is that he shares my affinity for mole tacos, which very few people do, that he makes amazing, uh, very Instagrammable bacon. I've never tasted it, but it looks really good. Uh, and he is a very thoughtful, careful individual. What I mean by careful is that he's careful with his words. I've had the privilege of uh, spending time with him, talking with him through some uh, difficult seasons of life even, and he asks great questions, and he's very careful with the way that he speaks truth into your life, and that is, of course, a good friend to have. have. He's also uh, a passionate about God's word, which is why I'm really excited to hear him preach uh, so go ahead and give a warm welcome, King's Cross welcome to Nick Bergardis. Saskia, thank you. All right, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to be back with you guys. Um, there we go. So today we're looking at Psalm 127. Um, and honestly, this is one that um, I'm, I'm grateful to be working through because it's one that I think God has been kind of working on me on for the last uh, 18 months. The last time I was with you guys was actually the Sunday before COVID. Um, it's, it's totally my fault, yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, and it's a very distinct memory because um, I remember things were starting to pick up. Um, Chris and I swapped. He preached for us and I preached for, for this church. Um, and then the next Sunday we were shut down. <laughs> um, and I know that the last two years have been incredibly, thank you, Oscar. Um, if we can get this right, I'll get you some of that bacon. Um, there's a lot at stake right here, Oscar. Um, but the last two years, um, I don't think there's a single one of us that hasn't um, experienced loss or change. Um, we've all lost something. We've all experienced significant changes. Uh, for us, our church closed um, in COVID. Uh, like you, we were meeting in a school. Um, I'll spare you the whole long story, but we were a casualty of um, the last couple years. And in my transition out of ministry, a decade of ministry, planning two churches, I now lead a marketing team and a software company. Um, it's a great place for me to land, but this topic has been one for me coming out of ministry is one that um, God has had to kind of work on my heart with, um, and that is, um, where is God in the midst of your work and your life, and what gives it real meaning and purpose? It's a big one for me. Um, I'm a very conviction-driven person, um, and when I feel like I'm kind of drifting, I really struggle. Anyone else like that, or is that just me? 
Cool. So the three Enneagram 8s in this room will <laughs> click on this one. Everyone else, come along for the ride, which is what we do, right? Okay, so um, every day of the week you're at work. Every day of the week, each of us is at work, building, striving, and guarding the life that each of us is carving out of the time that we have here on earth. And every day of the week, you are told on social media, on podcasts, from influencers and commentators, what a good life, a meaningful life does and does not look like. Julie Canlis uh, is an author. She wrote a book called The Theology of the Ordinary. Great little book I recommend checking out. She says this, from Facebook to reality TV, we are in charge of the images we, protect, we project to others, and they better be good. No one wants to see someone on reality TV minding his own business, taking naps when she needs to, commuting to a boring job that pays the bills and keeps children in school, loving his neighbor and helping manage the church finances. She points out the kind of contrast between the life that we're kind of told to cultivate, celebrate, and the one that we most often experience. And you come together this hour on Sunday, kind of like Oscar mentioned a minute ago, where we honor and glorify God, and we remind ourselves of his story and our place in it, and even more so what is absolutely and objectively true and good and beautiful. And without this hour of reorientation, you might just kind of drift off thoughtlessly into the prescriptions of a meaningful and good life that are not actually medicine, but poison. We start to believe that a truly worthwhile life is an extraordinary life, that the ordinary parts of life are to be hidden or ignored or probably most commonly just endured. And we start to assume that ordinary life is mediocre. Most people are familiar with two halves of Psalm 127 that we just read together. And they're familiar with them separate from one another, but obviously they're one Psalm. They're meant to go together. They're meant to be two halves to one whole. And what we'll see in this Psalm together this, this afternoon is that God through the Psalmist is showing us that there are two ways to live. Here's our roadmap on our time together that show us these two ways. One, the anxiousness of being extraordinary without God and the blessing of being ordinary with God. We're going to look at those two halves of the psalm through those lenses. So first, the anxiousness of being extraordinary without God. Um, look at the language here. There we go. Perfect. Um, these stanzas start with the word unless. It's a conditional phrase, right? Like, if this doesn't happen, then, if X doesn't happen, then Y. Or if X does happen, then why? It's this conditional if. if you, unless you add eggs to cake, it will fall apart. Unless you get regular oil changes, your car won't run. Unless you water the plants in your house, they will die. Unless God is involved, your building, your guarding, and your striving is in vain. And this language of in vain, vanity, uh, kind of has uh, echoes of the wisdom literature, especially Ecclesiastes. Uh, this language is uh, vanity is ultimately proving fruitless, pointless, that what you're building or protecting or guarding actually won't end up being what you intend for it to be. It, will, it won't bring about the intended fruits that you wish they would. It'll ultimately be pointless or fruitless. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about a man laboring his whole life, but not being able to enjoy the fruit of it, actually having to hand it off to his next of kin or 
his children not being able to enjoy it. It's in vain. And the outcomes of this, strive, of this vain striving, what are those outcomes? What do you guys see here? Exhaustion and anxiousness. Does that sound like a little bit of a description of the world that we live in? Weary, worn down, depleted, anxious, worried, on edge. The outcomes of striving apart from God are exhaustion and anxiety. When we first planted Cross of Christ, I was uh, uh, <laughs> like kind of like when Chris planted uh, King's Cross. Um, it's a terrifying thing to plant a church um, because you don't know, you have 10 people there, right? You don't know how long it's going to take until you're financially stable. We had a couple kids at the time. Um, we were living in a little condo in Irvine, and I was taking um, kind of a risk coming out of a, a pretty well-paying ministry job to plant a church that I believe God was calling us to plant. But I was scared. I was really scared. And so I started building a side, I started building this business where I was like, well, at least if the church doesn't work for a while, I can create this income stream over here, which sounds really wise, right? The whole time I'm doing it, I just felt this nagging voice in my head, like, you don't need to do it. You don't need to do it. Like, I felt like God was just trying to hit the brakes, and I kept trying to build. I was striving to make sure that my family would be safe and secure and all the things that sound appropriate and responsible and that are good in and of themselves. But I can tell you, the Dodds know me pretty well. I'm not a very like mystical person or like a touchy-feely, but I can tell you with real clarity, I felt like God was like, don't do this. But I tried anyway. And I was exhausted and anxious and scared and it never worked. <laughs> what I tried to build actually never came to fruition. That income stream never came about, but the church did come about and it did end up providing for the family in a responsible way. I have seen personally in that one instance and in countless others, the fruits of trying to build and strive and guard apart from God. And I'm imagining I'm not alone in this room. I'm imagining that some of you have done similar things. And it's not saying not to build, not to guard, not to work hard. There's plenty of other parts of scripture that actually encourage that, right? It's not a bad thing to to undertake good hard work, to cultivate, to steward the gifts of God. Those are all good. It's saying not to do those things without God. He wants to do them with you. It's kind of like uh, that line in Jurassic Park where it's Dr. Uh, Malcolm, right? He says like your scientists were so preoccupied thinking about whether they could do something and thinking about if they should. It's kind of what the psalm is saying. Like you're so worried about what you need to do or could do. You're not actually, like, is God saying you should do it? So this, this psalm is confronting here, this desire to build and strive and guard apart from God. And it's also not saying, I want to say one more thing very importantly, it's not saying that all anxiety is caused by striving apart from God, but it's inviting you to examine how much of your anxiety may be caused by that. It's also making a subtle point that doing something without God may look successful. Because a house does get built. A city is guarded. There is result. There are results in this passage, but the end outcome is anxiousness. What may look extraordinary is actually in vain. 
You may be the richest man in the world and have children willing to forego a fortune of an inheritance to have nothing to do with you. You may be one of the largest megachurch pastors in the world and the celebrity culture that you cultivated will be the church's undoing. In Jesus' words, what good is it to gain the world and lose your soul? The psalm is confronting the desire that we have innately in us to try to build, to try to guard, to strive apart from God. And this might feel uh, relentlessly exposing, but see the good, see the invitation in this, because what does God give? What does it say that God gives to his beloved? Anxiety and worry? Rest, peace. God isn't opposed to hard work, but he gives rest and peace within the midst of it. As created beings, we're limited, we're dependent, kind of like what Oscar was pointing out uh, at the beginning of this service. We are, we are living within God's cosmos. We, he is outside of us. We are dependent on him. We are made to live with that kind of relationship. And God wants to work alongside you, alongside me, alongside this church. And as he does so, he wants to give rest. Now, in this ordinariness, as we look at our desire to be extraordinary, it's good to be reminded of how did God create everything. In the first couple of chapters of Genesis, what does God say when he makes everything? It's good, right? There's a, there's a wholeness to it. There is a, a peace in its living underneath God's reign in relationship with God that he calls really good. Adam and Eve in their ordinariness were good. What did they do at the beginning? They didn't start businesses. They weren't like doing these, they didn't, under, they didn't send men to Mars. They weren't undertaking these huge endeavors. They were walking in the cool of the day with the Lord God. They were tending a garden that God made and asked them to steward. It was ordinary life. It was ordinary work. And that's what God calls good. But a couple of chapters later, you'll be familiar with the story of Babel. After the fall of man, things go sideways real fast. And by chapter 11, we're trying to build towers to the heavens trying to be extraordinary without God. Author Zach Eswine says this, you were never meant, you were never made to fix everything, to be everywhere at once, to know everything. You don't have to repent for that. You have to repent for trying. Again, there, Eswine helpfully confronting our desire to be extraordinary, to go beyond our limits without God. And in our inability or unwillingness to live within our limitations, our desire to be independent from God, our entitlement, our self-sufficiency is denying who we are and who God is. God wants to give us sleep while we want to prove that we're something that we're not. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Run with the Horses, says this, Pliny the Elder once said that the Romans, when they couldn't make a building beautiful, made it big. The practice continues to be popular. If we can't do it well, we make it bigger. We add dollars to our income, rooms to our houses, activities to our schedules, appointments to our calendars, and the quality of life diminishes with each addition. On the other hand, every time that we retrieve a part of our life from the crowd and respond to God's call to us, we are that much more ourselves, more human. Every time we reject the habits of the crowd and practice the disciplines of faith, we become a little more alive. Peterson helpfully contrasting our desire to be extraordinary apart from God and God's blessing in the ordinary. Building, guarding, striving, sleeplessly without God is in vain. It's the first part of this psalm. 
The second part gives us a way forward. The second part is the blessing of being ordinary with God. The blessing of being ordinary with God. Here's the deal. God blesses with ordinary things like children. The psalmist must have a sense of humor going from talking about sleep to children, right? The thousands of changed diapers, hours upon hours of breastfeeding, sleepless nights, peanut butter and jellies, bedtime stories, parent-teacher conferences, tantrums, first laughs, first words. Children are a reminder that God blesses in the ordinary day-to-day work of life. Perhaps contrasting God's blessing of the ordinary through the blessing of children with our own desire to be extraordinary in our building and guarding and striving explains two common views of children in our culture, idols and obstacles. In this psalm, the psalmist is saying children are a blessing of God. It is his ordinary blessing of normal life. But in our culture, we commonly hold children in two distortions. We see them as idols and we see them as obstacles. Generally, on kind of the right side of the political or cultural spectrum, we, we tend to see them as idols. We plan our entire lives around them. Our identity as parents and whether or not we succeed or fail rises or falls on how our kid does. They are absolutely everything in our existence, and they determine how we're doing in this life. We make them our little idols. On the left side of the spectrum, we tend to view children as obstacles, obstacles to our career, obstacles to our accumulation, obstacles to our freedom. The prevailing view over here tends to be that you are an economic unit that needs to produce for the outcome of our national economy, so put off children until later. Whether idle or obstacle, that's not how God views children. The Bible, from Adam to Eve to Jesus in the gospel, reiterates that God blesses through the ordinariness of children. In addition to God blessing in the ordinariness of family, God blesses in daily kindness to baristas and grocers, in the unseen tasks at your job, in the making of breakfast, in the pages of reading required for your class, in the simple making of your bed, in your daily errands. God blesses and is with you in those moments. Zach Eswine, again, he says this, you want to do large things, famous and fast, but most things that truly matter needs small acts of overlooked love over a long period of time. That's something that deep down we know is true, but that we sprint past every single day. If you want to take that to a little bit of a darker note, Wendell Berry takes it to another level. He says, picture your family. There will ultimately be one person who buries the others. The things that truly matter need small acts of love over a long period of time, a life of blessed ordinariness with God. Ordinary dependence on God's blessing and weakness and limitation are like arrows in the hand of a warrior, and they will not bring shame. In other words, dependence is your strength. Think about the picture in the arrows in the hand of a warrior, weapons that he skillfully, over years of discipline training, learned to use, confident, fearless in the face of threat or uncertainty. Think about the picture of not being put to shame when facing your enemies. Someone who's dependent on God's blessing, who's communing with God, who's receiving and not striving is going to be hard to have anything bad to say about them. 
someone who is content and joyful, grateful, disciplined, and dependent in their ordinary life is generally not going to have dirt for others to dig up. <laughs> There's a blessing in the ordinariness that is, comes out in a life that is, for lack of a better word, spotless. Not pure, but unassailable. Above reproach, the New Testament might say. Your extraordinary resume, your extraordinary accomplishments are not your hope and refuge. Your extraordinary parenting, your extraordinary marriage and Christian life are not your hope and refuge. Your target is not extraordinary. Your target is dependence on God's blessing within the ordinary. Aim for the extraordinary and you might hit it, but you'll miss the ordinary in the process. Aim for the ordinary and you might get the extraordinary thrown in, but it'll probably almost be unnecessary. Here's the deal. At the beginning of the sermon, we talked about how this hour every week on Sunday reorients us to what is most good and true and beautiful. At the center of existence, as you peel back, dig down, clear, clear away from it, you get to the most unbelievable reality of Jesus Christ. Think about everything that you are inundated with all week. All the voices, all the commentators, all the influencers that give you input on what kind of meaningful and good life you should be living. When you peel back all those layers, when you cut through the noise, you're left with this unbelievable kernel of Christian truth that God has come in the form of Jesus Christ to rescue sinners. And that he extends that salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. When you peel back all of the layers and cut through all the noise, you get this unbelievable reality of Jesus. That God sends Jesus to a manger in a stable in a backwoods part of Israel, born to a carpenter, raised in an absolutely normal family. Think about this. One writer asks, why couldn't Jesus have died as a baby for our sins? What was he doing for those 30 years? She points to Calvin who said that in those 30 years, he was accomplishing our salvation for us. In the millions of quiet moments of his life, not documented in the Gospels, in the spaces between verses in the Gospels, Jesus was depending on his heavenly father as he cooked with his mother, did chores around the house, took naps, learned to trade with his dad, fetched water, played with friends, learned to read, played in the countryside, as he bore with frustrating friends, endured grief and loss, faced accusations and betrayal, all of the ordinary parts of life, Christ was winning your salvation for you. All of the ways that you fall short in your ordinary, that I fall short in my ordinary life, Christ was achieving and accomplishing for us. It was this dependence in ordinary life that God the Father affirmed in Jesus' baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus hadn't done a single extraordinary thing at that point. Not a single miracle, not a single sermon. And yet God was pleased and reminded him of his identity. Pleased in what? Faithful, ordinary dependence. You'll remember it was Satan who tempted Jesus not to be dependent on God, to be independent and extraordinary by turning rocks into bread, having angels rescue him from a fall, or obtaining all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus embraced the ordinary aspects of his life with his heavenly Father for those who seek to be extraordinary without him. The Holy Spirit's primary job is to point you to your identity as a beloved son or daughter of God. 
Canlis again says that the Holy Spirit ushers us into adoption, not workaholism. He tells us not so much what to do, but who we are. Those of you who are Christians are beloved by God the Father, who wants to give you rest, who wants to work alongside you. Maybe like me, you found yourself or will find yourself at a crossroads in the coming season. You're trying to discern which way do I go. And maybe like me, you're viewing it through the lens of which is right and wrong. God's blessing in the ordinary as a beloved son and daughter of God reframes that view a bit. My friend Alex put it to me like this when I was talking to him. He's a pastor up in Seattle. I was saying, Alex, I'm like, I'm torn, I'm scared. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I want to make the right decision. I want to be responsible, right? All those things. He said, Nick, your father loves you and he just wants to play with you. He doesn't care if it's on the slide or on the monkey bars. You get to choose. Which way do you want to go? And that was helpful for me in seeing like God just wants to be with me in the ordinary day-to-day parts of life. He's not, there's not this pressure on me as long as I'm not obviously in like totally overt sin and like acting foolish, like in those like reasonable, wise moments where there's no just clear answer, there's a God who loves you and it's just like, where do you want to play? Let me go with you. The blessing in the ordinary. The reality is, as we close, the gospel has everything to do with your ordinary life. I know that this church wants to be one that helps people know the love of God and Jesus and live it out in all their lives because the gospel is for extraordinary sinners in their everyday, ordinary lives. Consider how ordinary these gospel-directed circumstances are behind me. For the sake of time, I won't read all of them. I just want you to see how absolutely ordinary the instructions in the New Testament are. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Be eager to practice hospitality. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Husbands, love your wives. Work with enthusiasm as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. The gospel has everything to do with our ordinary lives. It's not detached, abstract, removed. It's everyday, practical, particular. As I said in the beginning of the sermon, I believe many of us have assumed that ordinary life is mediocre. And we start to believe that a truly worthwhile life is an extraordinary life. That the ordinary parts of life are to be hidden, ignored, or endured. What we see in Psalm 127 is that the pursuit of an extraordinary life without God leads only to exhaustion and anxiety. Instead, the ordinary aspects of your life are precisely the places that God wants to be with you. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.